When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the new podcast that seeks out answers to questions large and small. My name is George Miller, and the question I'm pursuing in this programme is, what can poetry learn from music? Not about surface lyricism, but at the deeper levels of form, of their relationship to time. Eliot writes in Burnt Norton, words move, music moves, only in time. And about the structuring power of the human breath as a way of making sense. My guest in this programme is Fiona Sampson. I didn't want to just look at where poetry and music coincide. That's been done. That's what people think about when they think about music and poetry overlapping. And that seems to me a sort of way to dob out. It's a way to not really interrogate the similarities between the forms of genres. So I wanted to do it the other way around. I wanted to think about poetry through music because my, as it were, concept is that the elements that are common to both are the musical ones, and then there's a kind of crown of denotation, as it were, over the top. Fiona's exceptionally well-placed to consider these questions. She initially trained as a classical violinist, before changing tack in her early 20s to pursue a literary path. She's gone on to be an award-winning poet, as well as an editor, critic and translator of poetry. Her recent books include a fascinating study of landscape and place, Limestone Country, a biography of Mary Shelley, and the work that provided the starting point for our conversation, Lyric Cousins, Poetry and Musical Form. Before we got on to the deeper resemblances between these two cousins, I wanted to hear more about Fiona's musical beginnings. I left school at 16 uh, with a couple of A-levels, and I only took the A-levels so that I could get a grant to go to music college. I was absolutely adamant that book learning was over for me. I was in love with the world of art and making. When I was younger, I'd wanted to be a writer, but I learnt pretty thoroughly in my teens that girls from not particularly good schools in the British provinces don't become writers. You have nothing to say. You're a woman of no importance. Whereas in those days when music was still part of county public provision, education provision, there were lots of opportunities. And I was very lucky. I had very good teachers from early on. Yes, just lots of wonderful opportunities. And music was a real thing. I was taught by people who were 
live professional performers, instead of being somehow taught that there was a subject, but it was something you did at school or because you were of school age, but it was closed off from the world of really doing it. In music, there was a continuity. And you said, Fiona, that you thought at 16, book learning was behind you. So how did, did, it, did it creep in by the back door? Were there, were there questions that even when you were a practicing musician, you were beginning to turn over in your head, you know, bigger questions about art? No, I think one of the great tragedies of a not particularly good education, also actually a great tragedy of a musical education, which is very craft-led. I mean, you spend hours a day practicing and you're thinking, but you're, not, you're thinking non-verbally, is that you simply don't understand that there's such a thing as ideas. You, I absolutely had no notion there was such a thing as thinking. I thought there were only facts and I'm not hugely, I'm very interested in truth, but I'm not particularly interested in facts and labels it was only the old cliche later on when I had a boyfriend who'd been to university that I understood that there was such a thing as being allowed to think, as learning to think. By that time, I'd already given up the violin because I realised when about, this is one of those epiphanies, when I was about 23, 24, that my imagination was not musical. My imagination was verbal. And I, now, tell me what you mean by that. When you say your imagination was not musical, what, what does that mean? I meant that I was responsive in music. People say that you're musical if you're an interpreter, if you can do it by feel. And of course, I mean, I understood harmony too. I mean, it was kind of intellect in that sense. But I couldn't compose. If I had been able to be a composer, I would have stayed as a musician. But I felt that because I wasn't a composer, I was merely an executor. I wasn't truly a musician. I mean, of course, that's stupid. And because there are lots of people who, who who don't compose, but who make a good absolutely. living and probably derive satisfaction from it. But, but you weren't deriving satisfaction from that. Increasingly, I wasn't, yes. I mean, there's a kind of restlessness when you're young, isn't there? There's kind of, you always want to go further. And, and I'd always read. I'd always read voluminously. I mean, and read, you know, thanks to the public library system, read my way around all the public libraries. And, and so I had this other world, inner world, which was, which was textual, which was big novels and canonical poetry and that seemed to me to be where selfhood was not my selfhood but where selves were made selves were made in thought so in a sense I did understand about thought but I didn't it was all so inarticulate but so I, I took the leap I gave up the violin it was not I mean it was a sort of little scandal in my generation because you know I was a good violinist and I gave up and it was pretty much overnight and um, it was difficult for my family too. And had I known how how many years the formation of a writer would be, had I known how difficult it was and had I known that perhaps the rest of the world doesn't operate in quite such a transparently mer meritocratic way as classical music does, I wouldn't have had the courage. But thank goodness I didn't know because in the end you have to be yourself. Is there a path not taken where you continue to play the violin and explore words simultaneously or do, do you think your mind works in a way where it had, to, it had to be all or nothing one or the other it had to be all or nothing I think partly because I just I'm quite a workaholic so I spend a lot of hours a day doing the thing that I'm doing I simply wouldn't have had the stamina to do six hours practice a day and also do six hours of writing in a day I just couldn't have done it and also I don't think you can be so driven in in two different directions I 
have absolutely no regrets about giving up the violin, even all this time later. But I do very occasionally dream that I'm still, that I'm playing one of the pieces I used to play and knew, you know, and still know very well. And in some ways I regret having done the violin only because in pragmatic terms, it means you're such a late developer. You know, I didn't go to Oxford until I was in my mid-twenties. I mean, you're such a late developer in whatever you do next. And, you know, I, I, I mind that time being, in a sense, lost. Well, lost is one way to put it, but you maybe you went with a more mature outlook, broader intellectual horizons, plus also this this layer of musical understanding which you've you've brought to bear in, in, in the book we're talking about, Lyric Cousins. All all of all of those things are presumably true? One would hope they're true, but I don't know. I think there's a thing, isn't there, where to some extent you can't bring to the table what is not at the table. So for a long time, in a sense, my musical knowledge was completely muted. It's in a way unfashionable and a bad thing to have been a classical musician because classical music is regarded as elitist. Of course, it's much more elitist again now when, you know, yeah, you can't have lessons nowadays unless your parents pay for them. But I mean, you know, I didn't have to, have, my parents didn't have to pay for my lessons, you know. So it was a kind of lonely, a kind of almost like a private vice. There was, there wasn't, there weren't many people I could talk to about it. So it became irrelevant. It just became half of me didn't count in a way. And part of that is obviously when you start to do something new, you throw yourself into it. But it was lovely when later on I did meet people like, you know, poet Peter Porter, who absolutely loved music. Not We didn't quite adore the same repertoire, but it sort of was very grounding, that sense that a poetic mind, or maybe a poetic voice could emerge out of a mind that was filled with classical music, and that this wasn't a terrible, aberrant, archaic elitist door-closing thing it was simply a truth about who one was a particular mixture of things one happened to be you know in one's own life in contradistinction to to peter porter and to edward said whom you mentioned in the preface to this book you were a professional musician and without being one upmanshipy about it you would say that there is something different about actually having experienced that at that standard from the inside and you're bringing a different set of perceptions to bear on these questions from someone who is a great melomane. Yes, I, I mean, you're bound to, aren't you? And I think that it, I think that one of the things it, it does it is it demystifies music for you. I mean, music is, <laughs> how can you sum it up in one word? Music is a wonderful thing, but it doesn't, for me, it's not more, it's not mysterious. It's less mysterious than poetry. It's not the absolute art. It's not transcendent. And that's very interesting, isn't it? Because if a writer who loves music thinks that music is the transcendent, is in a sense the, the end point, the perfect artwork, then they must really be in some way wanting to shed the linguistic, the denotative, the whatever aspect of the poem and get towards music. And it's certainly... And yet I don't see any of that in the work of the poets that I know who like music particularly. And at the same time, yes, paradox, it is true that for me, the ideal poem would probably be abstract, would be kind of colour forms. And yet I'm not interested in concrete poetry. I'm not interested in that kind of experiment because I think that A, once you've done it, once you've done it, you're just repeating it. And B, I think that it fails to rise to the challenge of what language actually is. And language is denotative. I mean, it is... 
communicative and denotative and not purely semiotic, not purely musical and oral. And the great challenge is how you can make something, for example, all one breath or, or a tonal unity, but also have, since you're doing that with language, have language do what language is. And my other assumption about the difference between a keen amateur or music lover and someone who'd been a professional is that you would bring to it more of an appreciation of technique and form and structure, nuts and bolts, the, 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 the things that make music a bit more akin to mathematics, perhaps, than, than to words. Yes, I think that's true. I think that also I think that being a player, I mean, you are you're an, an instrumentalist, you are you're aware that music is always sort of polymorphous. I mean, in the sense, maybe not that, it's multifaceted, that to play a piece is always to be simultaneously conscious and unconscious of what you're doing technically, always to be simultaneously conscious and unconscious of what the music is doing technically, unconscious and conscious of your body and of the audience or, or the auditor. And that sense of the multiplicity of things that, come into play in music that very fully realized multi-dimensional notion of a of a piece happening a piece of music happening is the kind of the complex model that then if you bring it to bear on poetry calls for an equal examination of complexity in the poem you know the poem is also not simply i don't know the muse speaking through one of course nobody talks in those terms now but it isn't simply, as some people say, transcribing the world around us. It isn't simply observation, it isn't simply your voice, your poetic voice, which I've you know, which always seems to be a weak term in a loose term in teaching of poetry. It's it's many things simultaneously in the same way. Things that are both technical and not, things that are both intentional and they're not. So you say in the preface to this book that your intention, your project, is to approach poetry as if it were music. So you've already alluded to the the de- denotative versus the non-denotative aspect, which is clearly a big one that we're probably going to spend some time on. But tell me tell me what you mean at the outset by approaching poetry as if it were music. Well, I think that what I mean is I didn't want to just look at where poetry and music coincide, either through history or in art forms now. That's been done. That's what people think about when they think about music and poetry overlapping. And that seems to me a sort of way to dob out. It's a way to not really interrogate the similarities between the forms of genres. I didn't want to think about music through poetry because you end up with this awful you know, paraphrase, as if you were turning all music into program music, as if, I mean, quite a lot of the work in philosophy music is around, isn't it? It's around whether music means, and it wants to, by meaning it, it it means something translatable into words. It can't accept that music is meaningful, I don't mean in some spiritual way, but in some highly intentional made way, but what it means is itself, just in the same way as a Ming dynasty pot is meaningful, but its meaning is itself, is that form. The form itself is its meaning. And so it was a kind of redundancy to do it that way around. So I wanted to do it the other way around. I wanted to think about poetry through music because it, it, my, as it were, concept is that the elements that are common to both 
are the musical ones and then there's a kind of crown of denotation as it were over the top that's to simplify not entirely the case because actually when I think about some aspects denotation very much comes into it but I wanted to think about it that way around. So you you selected a sequence of attributes which you see as being common to both mm. and you you write essays on on mm. each of them yes. um you mentioned you mentioned the breath there and that's clearly very important to both and that's a very interesting idea that i've been thinking a lot about since i read the book so mm. tell me tell me why you think this this idea of the not the idea the, the actuality of the breath is somehow fundamental to both I think that if you think about music in any genre, Eastern, Western, traditional, non-traditional, art music, popular music, very little is common to those musics. But one thing that is common is, is the kind of unity that comes through simultaneity. But another kind of thing that is common is the unity that comes through passages of sound, passages of related interrelated sound. I mean, in other words, even when you think about drumming. And the building block of those passages seems to be what we call a phrase. We call it a phrase in music. We call it a phrase in grammar. And in poetry, we call it a line, by and large. And the more I thought about what a phrase is and how interesting it is that there's this overlap between the musical phrase and the linguistic phrase, the more I began to think about it as a breath unit, because the more I began to realise that the basic grammatical unit, the subject-object-verb, is pretty much as, as much as one can say in a breath. And the same to some extent, obviously, what you can sing is what you can sing in a breath. And there is just space for a kind of out and back, a kind of a progression, a melodical harmonic progression, which kind of goes somewhere and resolves itself, or even if it resolves itself into a, a kind of suspension that's then going to go somewhere different next. And I'm particularly aware of that because I don't have much breath. I have very short breath. I'd, I'm not very good at breathing. I have it's a very bronchial child and I can't take very deep breaths. And I'm really aware that when I write a poem, I can't write a five stress line because I can't make it work musically in my head, because I don't speak in five stress units. I don't speak or think in five stress units. Uh, three or four is comfortable for me. Four is the most that's comfortable for me. So I just became absolutely fascinated by this this fundamental breath unit, the unit of making sense, as well as the unit of making oral sense. So that concentration on the breath allows you not to get caught up in the detail of discussions about, about meter and so on. It goes to something much more mm. fundamental. Yes, it's. I, I wanted not to be talking about particular eras or particular cultures or particular forms. I wanted to be talking about poetry per se. So obviously that means free verse as well as traditional metrical verse. And I also want to be talking about music per se. The first time I really heard, I mean, actually since completing the book, I heard someone have an answering idea in a way was that um, I was in Timisoara in November and for a festival and we were taken round the collection of icons in the in the town cathedral and the nun who took us round was obviously talking about icons you know in a sense in a religious context because she was a nun and she was, she was talking about contemplation but she was saying that the icon is a 
a synchronic art. It's not a it's not a time based art like music and poetry. I thought, hurrah! Someone else has done the thinking for this completely other tradition of you know Orthodox Christianity. It seems to me so obvious, and yet we don't in our discussions of music and of poetry start. This is not our starting point, and I don't really know why, because it's it's a perfectly pragmatic, creative, makerly starting point as well. It's not purely philosophical or, or abstract. It's very practical to think about time and the performative, the necessarily oral nature of poetry. And Well, that, that's, that's very interesting. You mentioned the, the, the oral nature of poetry. I mean, you quote Basil Bunting in the book saying, poetry lies dead on the page until some voice brings it to life. Now, that's very definitely true about music and the score. Do you agree that that's true of poetry or is the analogy imperfect? I think the analogy is actually pretty perfect because I think we read chronologically, even when we read in silence to ourselves. And I also think that when we read a poem properly, I mean, when we're actually concentrating and reading it, we, and enjoying it, we read it, as I say to my students, out loud in your own head. So we read it, as it were, sonically, as well as um, semantically. In the history of poetry, writing poems down is a comparatively recent development, as we know, you know, much of form developed as a mnemonic. Um, so the primary life of a poem is, is to me, it's all, but also denotative life. And writing it down is, is purely transcription, purely a record. Although we can go back, we can go back and reread in a way that's harder yes. with music. We can, as it were, sort of walk around it, consider it as a whole step back, we can, but that's interesting, isn't it? Because we can, and obviously, you know, repeated readings, for example, is something. But I think that a poem happens in one direction, actually. And I think that one can go back and read passages in a novel, too. And indeed, you know, people do who have favourite novels that they read over and over. And when you teach, you teach, you know. Also, of course, actually, if you're a musician, you go through a piece of music backwards and you go do little bits. You go, Let's go from letter E again. You, you know, you... And there are particular passages that you like or particular passages that you practice more. In fact, you do have this passing through, going to and fro and going back. It, it works just in the same way as a poem. Because, of course, you know, since you can read music and play music, it's fully accessible to you in the way that words are to people who have literacy on the page. So, so to pursue this, this breath idea a little bit further, what do you think that opens up in terms of insights for the poet? Because the sort of direction of travel of the book is sort of taking insights or things which are embedded in music and sort of thinking, well, how can I bring this to bear in poetry? So what sort of new ways of thinking, you, you say in the book at one point, I think poets might well attend to, to musicians <laughs> or pay attention to musicians. What, what sort of insights do you think that's, that's opening up here in the case of breath? I think that we underestimate breath as a fundamental building block, which is both oral, I mean, can be heard and recognised, even if not consciously. So it's a strategic thing. And as a as a musical, you know, you see, there I am using that word music to mean um, shapely, as a, as a shaping building block. So it, it's it's almost as though in writing a poem, without being conscious of the fundamental units of breath, it's a bit like um, you know, thinking you're an architect but not understanding about foundations. It just seems to me absolutely foundational i mean a good example would be enjambment you know that lovely push me pull you of a of a phrase across a line break where the grammatical phrase goes across and the visual phrase and sometimes the musical phrase because sometimes there's a there's a 
rhyme at the line end doesn't go across. And so there's a kind of a micro pause, a kind of flexing, a, a lovely, a lovely, actually a heightening of the significance of the space between the word at the end of the line and the word of the next line, a kind of elasticity in language. And actually what's going on there is the work of breath. And we tend to make it rather like gardening with kind of topiaries. We just think that we, it's, it's in a way a question of technique. It's a, and of understanding of the nature of language. It, we're only using part of its capacity. We're only using the grammatical and the the resonant, the repetitive resonant, and we aren't using the the breath element within language unless we do use the breath element within language. It's, it's a kind of thinning of the experience. You're emphasizing the non-denotative aspects of poetry, but how do you how do you deal with the denotative aspects? How do you incorporate, recuperate that? unavoidable difference between music and how, how poetry, at least to most readers, yes. seems to be operating, which oh. is primarily by denoting yes. something in the world or well, in, the, in the imagination. Well, absolutely it is, isn't it? And that's why, in a way, ultimately, a poem is arguably more complex than music because I think it has to do all the work the music does and then do the work of language too. So some of sometimes there's an overlap so for example one of the things that i was also thinking about was abstract form proportion really that comes down to um an obvious one is sort of the golden section near the tipping point in a sonnet um now that's in a strict form sonnet which most sonnets are though not all obviously that's metrical but it's also denotative you know there's a kind of out and a return there's a question and then a response in the final six you know, out for eight lines and back for six and that is a deep form, an abstract form prior to language, but it is created by the denotative aspects of language. Chromaticism too, the sense of a message being beautifully slurred by uh, the kind of give of colour, which might, for example, mean by using things that have words or images that have a resonance, you know, with a canonical text or, or there's a second meaning, there's a punning meaning or whatever, or simply that they are quite, you know, quite an extraordinary metaphor. All those things that are chromaticism that bring in that, that othering of the kind of straightforward musical or linguistic grammatical, I told you so. Chromaticism, again, is, is a musical element. It's a, it's a, but it is, enacted by the denotative in language. In the second part of the book, you talk, as you, as you alluded to earlier, about spheres where words and music come together. And Euclidean Bostridge, the, the singer, is saying, talking about Lieder, so a German art song, what matters is that the song is saying something not what it's saying. And mm. I wanted to get you to comment on that and ask you whether you, whether you fundamentally believed that, because you, you've been talking about how you think maybe poetry is a, is a more realised or a richer or more complex form than, than music. Mm. Um, but yes. there he is sort of suggesting that once a poem's done its work, it can almost sort of be, it could be replaced by any sort of set of syllables if, if the effect is there in the music. Yes. I mean, it is, it is a huge problem, isn't it? Because... 
it is actually, of course, true that quite often when one goes particularly to hear leader, not quite so much with opera because largely you know the narrative thrust, even if there aren't surtitles, whatever, but with leader, you often don't know phrase by phrase, particularly if it's not in English, what it's saying. And you may not know, even if it's in English, because of the distortions of singing and because a musical setting creates its own reality and you know sometimes you just can't hear through the piano texture or whatever and all of those things mean that the words in a song do different work from what they did before they were set and I think that is something that poets struggle with and I struggle with it myself because you know, is it enough for the poem to have been so terrific that it triggered a wonderful composer into producing something else terrific? Well, yes, on one level. But on another level, what presumably the composer thought he was doing was, if not enhancing, then at least paying homage to or representing the poem. So I think it is problematic because I think it's certainly true and I don't think it's just because I'm the generation that grew up with poor quality music reproduction so very often I couldn't hear the words of songs including even pop songs I largely don't know what they say and I'm used to kind of the notion of a kind of highly intentional sounding voice but no notion of what they're saying but partly it must be that too. I, I, I think it's a problem. I, I think, it, you know, I think that... It's quite easy to say, as most poets do, and I agree, the difference between a poem and a, lyric, a song lyric is that the poem is freestanding and the song lyric can't be. It's perfectly worthy, but it's part of a whole. It's like the left hand only of a piano piece, you know, fine. But it's. But what do you do when it's Schubert setting really major German romantic poets? Or indeed Britain setting, you know, Auden or the lightweight dirge or, you know, anything else that's wonderful and complete. I noticed in the book, which must have gone to press or must have been written before the Nobel Committee awarded the prize to, to Bob Dylan, a slight sideswipe at, at nominations, the, the, the frequency of nominations mm. of Dylan for the mm. Nobel Prize. So in the light of what you're saying, take mm. away the music, Dylan isn't a poet and isn't writing poetry. No. So is he, is it just that he's, you don't think he's a particularly good writer or that you think that any, any songwriter should not be eligible for the Nobel Prize? I think that songs are a musical form. They're not a literary form. I mean, you know, libretti are sometimes literary, but I think if you're going to have a Nobel Prize for literature to go to song, then what's to stop it going to film? Where very obviously... So many amazing things come in as well as the words. Now, I certainly don't think Dylan was a poet. I mean, one isn't allowed to say this because of the hegemony, I'm sorry to say, of white male baby boomers who scream down, you know, abuse on social media, apparently, for example, when you say things like that. But, you know, why can't there be a difference in the world? Why can't, why, why can't he be a singer-songwriter, which is what he describes himself as? Why, why do we have to pretend he's something else? He doesn't, he's not a filmmaker either. He's not a, a dancer. He's, he's what he is. Why this urge to say, oh, well, pretend that he's something else as well? He's not. 
He's, then, he's what he is. Do we then get into more complicated terrain if we think about the case of Leonard Cohen, who was a poet as well as a songwriter, and in a, in some hypothetical world, is it possible to imagine him being up for a prize? And would we would we say, well, we're going to award his prize for the poetry, but if he puts music to any of his poems, then they're not legitimate. I mean, I, I know I'm in a very hypothetical realm well, here, no, but it's I just mean, interesting to tease apart. Well, for, for me... For me, yes. I mean, for me, you know... You make uh, a, a strong demarcation. Yes, I think the demarcation is not made by me, but by the genre. I mean, I think that when a, Leonard Cohen was a a serious poet, whether or not one liked his poetry, he was published as a poet before he was a singer-songwriter. He was published by literary publishers who... And his poetry, if you hadn't known who it was by, it would it would have passed muster. You know, it, would have, it was poetry. It was poetry. And when he wrote songs, he was writing songs. And of course, you can set a poem, whether or not it's your own poem. I mean, whether Len Cohen set one of his own poems or, you know, not. I mean, to take an example, another example, to shift it to the classical analogy, think of Ivor Gurney, wonderful composer, wonderful poet, very rarely set his own poems. Very rarely, but just occasionally. You know, do not forget me quite as Seven Meadows. That's him. But a lot of time he's setting other poets and his own poems are freestanding, but obviously he wouldn't mind it if other people had set them. But, you know, the question I think is about the genre in which the words are originally written, not whether or not they get set. And the question is about whether you write in that genre, not whether you also write and are massively more famous for writing, in Leonard Cohen's case, in a different genre, which is, you know, song. And then um, you may say, well, this is this is an outlier and, and we shouldn't sort of accord too much time to worrying about outliers. But you, you write about a very interesting French poet in your book, whom I hadn't come across, who seemed from your description to really be borrowing a lot of the the attributes of music in terms of repetition and sequencing mm. and layering and mm. polyphony and overlapping. So is the problem with what you're saying, perhaps that your genre demarcations don't admit of of straddling or hybridity or experimentation enough? Well, I think the thing about Patrick de Bost is that his texts work as, they work as texts. I mean, they work as, even if he didn't perform them in a complex way, even if he just performed them line by line, they would work as poems. They are written as poems. The fact they are also written to have a performance life. For example, some of them are very philosophically profound and that profundity is there whether or not different peoples in an audience are reading different lines or whether he also has a tape loop going. In a way, it's about the textiness of a text, isn't it? And in a way, it comes down to things like the question we were talking earlier about writing in healthcare. What is the difference between when you're working at the bedside of someone who's perhaps very elderly, perhaps has dementia, what's the difference between when they're chatting and when they start dictating a poem to you? The difference is in the intentionality. In other words, it is a genre difference. What their poem, their dictated poem, might actually not be more interesting or linguistically rich or indeed narratively rich than what they were saying in conversation. But for them, that's where the poem starts and ends. When they say, and that's all I've got to say on it now, that's where the poem ends. So it isn't really about... For example, in the case of Dylan, it's not whether you think Dylan was any good as a singer-songwriter. It's absolutely not to do with that. It's to do with the genre in which he, but primarily the genre in which I hate to whether say the word text, but the word in which the word te- in which the words are participating and and originally participated. Because 
you know, that's flexible and experimental work and that's always really exciting and, and actually outliers, you're right, do define a field more, more, more fully and more richly. But nevertheless, genres do exist and they exist at the level of intentional participation as, as readers and as writers, as listeners and as performers. And that's okay. I don't think that that closes the door on variation and so on. I don't think identity closes the door on, on variety or, or variation within, you know, or beyond identities. We're talking about these very fertile, suggestive ideas that you've been exploring about how practitioners in one genre or one art form can reflect on, perhaps derive inspiration from the forms, the techniques of another, another art form. We're talking at a time when the world of British poetry seems riven with a debate, not about those perhaps more sophisticated insights, but really about mm. whether technique, craft, awareness of its own past has, has caused, well, a lot of polemic, a lot of debate, a lot of anger, a lot of division. Mm. What is your take on that? Well, I don't really want to talk about the specific debate because I hate the way British poetry is so riven and I think it's pointless to be working in a field that is so small to be divided against itself. I think there is an important point for me around the distinction that performance poets make between what they do and what the rest of us do. And they call us page poets. And it is an extremely dismissive term because it suggests that the oral semiotic is not everything I've been saying. It is not at the heart of poetry. And it suggests an impatience with and an inability to read or hear what other poets through the centuries have done. And I have a great resistance to that not necessarily to what they are themselves doing, but to their attitude to the rest of poetry. I think that's inordinately destructive and a touch arrogant. And it's a great loss for poetry. What would you say in conclusion, Fiona, to um, poets if they want to, and in addition to looking at your book, obviously, if they want to perhaps draw some inspiration, if that's a word, from music or insights or refreshment? What would be sort of your um, your 101 course for your, your mm. prescription to get that sort of refreshment? Well, I guess my 101 course would be to suggest that poets who don't might think about listening to some instrumental music. So in other words, where there isn't the distraction of meter and song and words. And some of that might be traditional music and from all sorts of traditions, I don't know, Indian raga, whatever. And some of it might be Western classical music. And I don't think one should dismiss what one doesn't know. So I would suggest, you know, I mean, if I were teaching a course, I would, you know, find the pieces I think are accessible and amazing and ask people to listen with their I'm serious about my own poetry hat on. But I think that people can just start by, you know, browsing on, on YouTube and just 
yeah, to all sorts of things. I don't know, Michael Nyman, you know, doesn't have to be Beethoven symphonies, but but just to think about music beyond the three minute chart or indie song makes no difference. <laughs> the formula is the, is in a way the same. Think of the capacities of music through every culture and every century that are beyond that. I was talking to Fiona Sampson about Lyric Cousins, Poetry and Musical Form, which is available now in paperback and as an ebook from Edinburgh University Press. Full details at euppublishing.com. Do also visit thehedgehogunderfox.com for news of forthcoming and archive interviews in this series. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, why not subscribe to the programme on iTunes, where you can also catch up on any interviews you've missed. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.